You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, first, I appreciate you being here this morning. This is the end of this four-part series on faith-seeking understanding, as you see here in the title on the screen. Now, I've tried to do various things with this series. Uh, I hope all of it's important and that it means something to people. It definitely does to me. It's been part of my own sort of faith journey. Uh, if you don't know what I do, I teach philosophy, and so this is stuff that I do all the time in my profession uh, at Sanford University. But it's also been part of my own faith development as well that I have learned in my own experience that faith, as I say here, is about a certain kind of God, not just any kind of God, not just any kind of idea, but it's God who has created the world. That's the very first thing we claim in our, our, our confessions of faith, our creeds. I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And the very first thing that we find in the scriptures is that God created the world. So what I have faith in is the very actions, the reality that we know of God testified in our scriptures, in our confessions, in worship. And this God, as I've mentioned here, has had a great history. Throughout the scripture we find God acting in very powerful ways. Calls Abraham and Sarah. Speaks through Moses, gives the law, speaks through the prophets, establishes the nations. Becomes incarnate in a human being, Jesus Christ who suffers for the sins of the world and crucified, raised again, manifest in the act of Pentecost. God has done all sorts of great things that has led to the redemption of the world. My faith is in what God has done. And so therefore, my faith, my total commitment, my ultimate concern, the deepest, deepest reserve, resolve that I have is towards this, this God, then I think it's just right for us to try to understand what all that means. And this is what philosophers have done. As I say there, in the end, there's a logic to faith to want to grasp what we do believe in, to appreciate. It's not done because we want to be skeptical or critical, but out of appreciation and wonder of the great things that God has done. I started three weeks ago with this person, and I made a mistake in the recording, and it got botched up, and so it's not on the website. But St. Anselm of Canterbury, magnificent philosopher, is an Augustinian Benedictine monk. Uh, and I had a lot of things to say about him. But what I wanted to try to do with each of these philosophers, and today we'll talk about a German philosopher named Immanuel Kant, was that they had a certain way of experiencing their faith. It was all oriented towards God, but they did it in their own unique way. Anselm was this Augustinian monk who eventually becomes this great famous archbishop of Canterbury where he's, he's buried. But he is just saturated and undated with a great power of liturgical language and sacramental experiences. His whole life was shaped by the reading of Scripture, by the chanting of the Psalms, and by writing very careful works about the faith. And so within this kind of faith, this sort of life experience, commitment to God, he articulates a way to understand that, and he comes up with this famous argument called the ontological argument for God's existence. Just briefly, I can't go into it in much detail, but if you were here three weeks ago, this would be a rehearsal. Maybe you've studied this before. But Anselm said all people would define God as that which nothing greater can be conceived. You cannot conceive of anything greater than God. And if you truly believe that and you understand the logic of the belief in God as that which nothing greater can be 
can be conceived, then you must believe that this God exists. It's irrational not to believe that such a God exists. Now, of course, philosophers debate this back and forth, the logic of it, the semantics of it. I'm quite honestly pretty convinced by that argument. But what I want you to understand, though, is that here is a man, he was a trained logician, steeped in philosophy, man of faith, a monk, an archbishop, was applying the very best of his understanding of his rational skills to understand what his faith was about. The next one was this great Dominican priest named St. Thomas of Aquinas. Thomas, we we could talk, you know, days and days about Thomas of Aquinas. Uh, He too, like Anselm, was a great logician, great reader of philosophy, but he was a man of faith first and foremost. He was a Dominican priest. He traveled all throughout Europe preaching. He taught a number of times at the University of Paris. He was a, a quite humble man, but he was always very intent on trying to understand the world as it was. He had been shaped by a particular philosophical view that he had gotten from uh, Aristotle that the world shows and manifests is evidence of the Creator. It's designed in a certain way. And so, in a sense, Thomas is a scientist. He was interested in the construction of the world, how it, how it is fashioned. And from that, <clears throat> his profound faith, knowing that God is the Creator, his scientific faith, knowing that the world is ordered in a certain way. He comes up with his famous argument for the existence of God. And I'm not going to go over this, but there's the five ways. There's causality, there's motion, there's degrees, there's design, and then there's this issue of contingency. The world manifests those five things. All those, according to Thomas, suggest that there is a God that made the world this way. So this notion that that the world shows the effects of it being created by God is born out of his deep faith towards such a God. Then, uh, last week we talked about one of the most interesting people I think I've ever studied. Uh, of course, he's controversial, but is Boisai Pascal. We could talk all, once again a long time about Pascal. But he was a, an intense person. He too was a scientist, a great mathematician. Uh, he also realized the limitations of what the mind and knowledge can know about the world. He had a profound sense of longing for happiness in his life. He uh, you know, was involved in intense relationships. He had this kind of quest for meaning that drove him all throughout his life. His faith was born out of this seeking, this search for God. Of course, you can't find God in a closet. You can't find God in a scientific theorem. But if we seek God, how are we going to find a God appropriate to the reality of the God who is transcendent, creator, mysterious, the God of all the world. How can we find such a God as that when we cannot see it or, or grasp it or put it in a, a theorem or an experiment? And so and Pascal's faith is born out of this relentless seeking for ultimate meaning and happiness in life. So what he does in his own way comes up with an argument that's called the wager. Some of you are familiar with this. If you heard last week, you remember it. The wager is... Scientifically, we cannot prove that there is a God. So there either is one or there is not one. Alright? If uh, you believe that God exists and God does not exist, then you've not lost anything. If you believe that God exists and there is a God, you've, etern- you've gained eternal happiness. Alright? If you don't believe in God and God does not exist, you've lost nothing. But if you do not believe in God and God does exist, you've lost everything, eternal happiness. And he says, in light of that, you've got a wager. Which one? Don't go to 
mathematician, don't go to a physicist, a chemist to solve that problem. Your heart has to solve that problem. One of his famous little phrases that the heart has its reasons of which the mind knows not of. What will your heart do? And according to Pascal, we always take risks, wagers. When we fall into love, we don't know exactly how it's going to end up, but you will never know until you give your heart to it. And the same thing with God. All right, that's born out of his faith, his passionate, relentless search for ultimate happiness in God. Well, today I'm going to move to another one. He's a little different. He's not quite as exciting as Pascal, uh, and that is pa uh, Immanuel Kant, who died in the year 1804. And the reason why I'm saying he's not all that exciting, uh, he never left his hometown. Well, he left a little bit, but came right back. He never wanted to leave what was called Königsberg, which was in ancient Prussia. Today, it is in modern Russia. But uh, Kant probably, arguably, is one of the five most influential philosophers in the West. Uh, it's not that... You know, I agree with everything that he says, but I do remember how influential he has been on me. In fact, I decided to study philosophy to become a professional philosopher because my sophomore year in college, I read one of his books. And I thought, even though nowadays I, I reject what he argued in that book, I thought, he's after something that I also wanted to be after. He's kind of a, a dear relative of mine. I hate to criticize him, even though he's wrong in many ways, but he has been very influential upon me. <clears throat> He, uh, he was raised in this town, a very pious family, very devoted family. Uh, uh, he was, uh, his father was um, uh, a harness maker, but a successful businessman. And they were German pietists, very devout, very disciplined people, methodically reading scripture, working through the prayers, very disciplined in their own moral lives. And, and Emmanuel was raised in this environment, this appreciation of the affections of faith and the disciplined life. Uh, well, he uh, was educated and uh, there in the, his hometown of Königsberg. And <clears throat> uh, he eventually, though, rejects the authority of the church. He rejects the priesthood. He rejects the scriptures as having sort of inherent uh, authority. Uh, but he nonetheless holds on to the affections of the pious, pious faith that his parents gave him. He becomes this philosopher there at Königsberg and this bust here is outside the University of Königsberg. He uh, works uh, sort of as a free lecturer for a while. The only way he's got taught, uh, paid was students would pay him directly. Until finally he earned his stripes and he was given this full professorship at Königsberg. He had offers to leave Königsberg to Halle and uh, uh, Jena and others, more prestigious universities. But he just wanted to stay in his own town. In fact, he was so methodical in his daily life, he took his daily walk at the same time regardless of the weather. Rain, snow, shine, whatever, he took his walk. And to this day, if we went to this town, we we would find a street there called the Philosopher's Walk. It's named after his rather famous walks. In fact, people would set their watches. Or there goes Emmanuel. It must be whatever time it was. But that sort of epitomizes so much of his own life. He never married, uh, even though he I, was known to be a good, uh, very convivial very social person, but he wasn't affectionate or intimate with people. He was so committed to his work. He published tremendous amounts of, of material from all sorts of topics, and people from all over the world were coming to Königsberg to hear this great famous philosopher named Immanuel Kant. Interestingly, um, as I mentioned earlier, he rejected the authority of the church and eventually he becomes the dean of the University of Königsberg. 
and it was traditional that they would have their commencement exercise there in the cathedral church there in Konigsberg. And he would lead the procession of the faculty and the students there, but because of his resistance to the authoritarianism of the church, he would never go into the cathedral. He would divert off to the side and the rest of them would go in. But once he died, though, they buried him next to the cathedral, and there's his his grave there next to the cathedral there, the Konigsberg Cathedral. Uh, you know, he's a complicated thinker, and, and I'm, I'm, I probably will be judged for my inadequacies today in trying to describe some of the basic ideas of, of, of Kant's philosophy. But he was driven by two things, what science can tell us, but something else, what science cannot tell us. He writes these magnificent books to explain the very intellectual basis of Newtonian physics, and that's called the critique of pure reason. And in this sort of rational justification for what science can tell us about the world based upon our experiences and based upon the proper logical explanation of those experiences, he comes to the conclusion that there's no rational way to know that there's a God, scientifically speaking. No way. Now, we did say earlier that Thomas Aquinas felt like there was, but Kant did not. In fact, he spent a lot of time critiquing Thomas's arguments. That our knowledge of the world is limited to our experiences. You cannot experience God in the same way you may experience this, this podium. And so therefore, any pretense of having a scientific explanation that God exists is wrong, it's bogus, it's unfounded from the very get-go. But he also knew that there, we have this sensation of something greater than ourselves. In fact, in the preface, one of the prefaces to this magnificent book called The Critique of Pure Reason, he has this very famous statement. In fact, I think this is one of the most revealing statements of all of Kant's philosophy, and that is, there are two things that impress me. The starry sky above and the moral law within. The moral law within. This is a holdover from his parents' influence, the pious affectionism of the religious practices of his parents, that he knew that there was something greater than what science can explain. He knew that there was something impressing itself upon us, and he called that the moral law. We have this profound sense of it in everything that we do, and we especially sense it when we respect other people. Well, Kant then writes a book after the Critique of Pure Reason called The Critique of Practical Reason. And what he does in that book is he tries to explain how can we know when we act ethically? How can we know when we act ethically? Now, to appreciate the significance of what Kant did in that book, we need to understand that Europe had been in a hundred years religious war where everyone was going around killing everyone in the name of God thinking that they were right and the other people were wrong. Well, who is right and who is wrong? And so he rejects all these notions of typical sort of justification for one's ethical actions based upon feelings or tradition or authority. No, it's got to be based upon what truly is right for all people. If it is truly about the moral law within, the sense of the ultimate purpose of a life, then we should be able to know it together and not kill each other because we had differences of opinion about this. And so one way I think to appreciate Kant, even though I'm not a Kantian and i got good reasons not to be a Kantian in a sense, is that he was trying to solve a very real problem. Everybody thinks they're right when they go around killing people in the name of God. They can't all of these right. How can we know what is right? And so he came up with this sort of rational way. It's somewhat convincing. I have to say I don't fully accept it. But a rational way of understanding 
this awareness of the moral law within. Now, it's early on a Sunday morning. I'm going to throw out some big words and it may just put you to sleep. But he said, you know that you're acting ethically consistently with the moral law when you wish the maximum of your actions to be a universal law for all people. You get that? All right, if you got it, you're ahead of everybody else. Um, that is, I should always act what I do know that I must do would be true for all people at all times without any qualifications. Another way in which he said it was that I should always treat people as moral ends in themselves, not as mere means. That I should respect you with dignity. And when I do, I know I'm acting ethically because we should treat all people with dignity. And another way in which he tried to explain that is that you should always act as though you are the universal moral legislature. That is, whatever you can say rationally, everybody ought to do, it is your duty to do. That is the experience of the moral law. Now, Kant felt that if we could be consistent with this moral law, this feeling that there is a duty that all of us must live up to. Now, I'm not talking about the, the sort of temporary hypothetical duties like, like I wore a coat and a tie. That, that's a nice thing to do, but I wouldn't say that's universalizable. I, I wouldn't say everybody ought at all times, in all cases, wear a coat and a tie. Here, it's relative. It's somewhat the duty to do it here. But I wouldn't say it's every. But, telling the truth, not killing unnecessarily. These would be things that we could say should be true across the board without qualifications. If you could live that way, as he says here, you are living a wise life. Because you are living an ethical life, a life of duty, a life of faithfulness and consistency to this feeling that you have in your heart that there is a moral law. Now, Kant said, you didn't make that up. That's just not what you want. That's not a matter of feelings or sentiments. It's a matter of reality. But you know, we can't know it as it is in itself. Our minds are too limited to know what the moral law is in and of itself. But nonetheless, I must act as though I can know it. Now, here comes one of the most important parts of Kant's philosophy in understanding this. He was convinced that there is a moral law, though our knowledge of it is limited. But if there is a moral law, there is a purpose to life. If there is a purpose to life, there is a reward to life. That reward comes in terms of happiness, satisfaction, fulfillment. It's like running a race. Once you cross the finish line, some of you may run a 10K or a half marathon or maybe even a marathon. When you cross that line, even though it's been rather arduous and taxing and painful to do so, there's a deep sense of satisfaction. I've done what I was called to do. I set out to do it and I did it. There's a happiness that comes once you cross that line. Well, Kant argued that there is a moral law, though our knowledge of it is quite limited. And that moral law is the truth. And it gives us a purpose, and it should give us a sense of happiness and fulfillment when we do act consistently with the moral law. Now, Kant felt, and I do think this is one of his best parts. Again, he lived in an incredibly bloody, tumultuous time. Europe divided by all kinds of strife, blood, fair, blood, blood spilt all over the, uh, the continent, that he felt that it was time to make a change. That we needed to move away from blind respect and obedience to authorities. And all of us rule, be ruled by reason 
ruled by common sense, ruled by the moral law itself. And if we could, we could overcome war. In fact, one of the last things that he wrote called Perpetual Peace, I, I think, it, frankly, it's to me one of the best things that he wrote. He has this vision, international vision, of how to overcome the strifes that lead to war among the nations. And of course, all of us and should be committed to that because nothing is more devastating than war among nations, nothing. And so he spends the last years of his life trying to think of ways to do this. And he becomes then sort of the champion of what is called the Enlightenment. In fact, he writes this little book called What is the Enlightenment? Now, if you've studied much of the history of the ideas in the West, you know, there was the medieval period and then the Renaissance period, and then after the Renaissance, there was what's called the Enlightenment period. He represents the essence of that Enlightenment period. Do away with the stultifying institutionalisms, the authorities, the appeal to obedience. Follow science, follow your reason, and we'll move into an Enlightenment, a way of a better way of looking at not only the world, but ourselves. And perhaps if we will do this, we can overcome this perpetual warfare that has just devastated our world. And so, he wants to argue... Uh, oh, this is... I'm going to pass on this. I, I don't have enough time. But he also argued... He was one of the first early philosophers... No, no, he was one of the first European philosophers that argued for animal rights. But that was born out of this act of duty that we owe to all things. Animals suffer, therefore we owe them some right not to unnecessarily cause them to suffer. All right, but this is representative of his commitment of following the moral law. Even towards animals, we should follow the moral law. But again, here he is, he has this incredibly optimistic, jubilant almost expectation that you can act ethically, you can act rationally. If we could just sort of rid ourselves of this encrustations of authoritarianisms and traditions and just follow the, the dictates of what he called pure practical reason, we can solve our problems. The French and the Germans, the English, the Italians, and all these, the Russians, we can quit trying to kill each other if we just follow reason. It is in us to do that. But on the other hand, Kant knew about human depravity, the weaknesses of our mind, the, the limitations of our, our resolve and our commitments. You should be moral, but it's hard to be moral in a world that doesn't reward your morality. It's hard to keep the faith, so to speak, when time after time you do the right thing, but the wrong thing is the consequence of it. How can you sustain your moral life? This is when he finally comes up with what is his sort of argument for God, that it's going to be rational to believe in God. Now, keep in mind, you don't go to the scientist, you don't go to the mathematician to say that there is a God. They can't tell us. Why? Because our mind is too limited. All scientific knowledge is based upon experience of the world. God's not an object in the world. By definition, God is not an object in the world. Therefore, there is no scientific knowledge of God. But we have this knowledge of the moral law that there's something right and profound about the human experience and that we should be rewarded by our, by, with happiness and fulfillment by acting morally. If you do what is right, and what is right is the moral law, then you should experience human fulfillment. But we don't. It goes unrecognized. Oftentimes it has counter-consequences to it. We slip back into conflicts. We have war. 
And so we are faced with a choice, according to Kant. Either we give in to the persistent despair and defeat of human society, or we keep faithful, committed to the moral law. Either we recognize we'll never be happy, we'll never be completely fulfilled, and hence give up doing it and trying for it. Or we will, in the midst of our conflicts and our losses, be faithful to the moral law. It's in that choice that we need some help. We need something to encourage us, to reinforce our commitment to live consistently with the moral law. And it's right to do so. Because it's such an important decision to make. Give in to despair and nihilism and defeatism or keep faith with the moral law. And now, at this point, he brings in the belief in God. That is, if we believe in the moral law, that moral law should reward our moral actions. If we truly believe and act consistently with our duties to that moral law, according to Kant, then all people should weigh I mean, should experience peace with one another and we can overcome these horrible, horrible, deleterious acts of war. If we believe there is a God who rewards those who are faithful to the moral law, and if we believe that there is an immortal soul in which that faithfulness will experience ultimate fulfillment, then we are more likely to remain committed to our duties to the moral law. Here, faith supports ethics for Kant. He felt like it was rational to do so, that it's persuasive, that it's commendable for a person to believe in God. Not because you've got a great rational, scientific reason for it, but because it helps you to remain faithful in commitment as a moral person. Also, near the end of his life, he writes this book called uh, Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. Uh, I've actually used it a number of times. It's a pretty good book. Uh, it was a little notorious when it was published. In fact, when it was published, uh, the, uh, the Prince of Prussia at the time wrote Kant and uh, asked that he would not publish anything like that again because it challenged so much of the state's church, the authority of the state church there in Prussia. And Kant, he was an academic through and through. He, did, you know, he, he lived his whole life in the university, around the university. He sort of professionalized philosophy. These other people whom we've studied, even though uh, Thomas taught at the University of Paris, he was first and foremost a Dominican. You know, most of his life was outside the academy. Uh, Anselm never taught in a university. Uh, Pascal never taught in a university. Kant was probably the first major philosopher that was strictly professionally paid philosopher. Well, when he gets this letter from his prince, he writes him back and says, nothing personal, I'm, I'm ad-libbing here. Uh, uh, I didn't write it for you. <laughs> I did not write this for you. I wrote this for academics or professional philosophers who could understand the subtleties of our reasoning. Uh, typical, I guess, in many ways. <laughs> but uh, it does sort of represent that Kant was trying to solve these these highly sort of intellectual problems. Uh, he first and foremost, as I said, was a professional philosopher. But he was still trying to make sense, I think, of this inner sensation, this intuition that he had, that there is a moral law 
But he also came to realize, and this was near the end of his life, by the way, the last, I think he died 12 years later. I could be wrong about that after he writes this book. But he did know that there's this tendency within all people to do what he called radical evil. Radical evil. That people can do evil things. That is, you can know what's right and will to do against it. You can be convinced of what your duty is and actually decide to reject it. That's what he called evil. The perpetual negation. You know what's right, but you negate it. It's within us. And that's a very, frankly, sorrowing thing to know about human nature. That even the best of people have the tendency to reject what they know is their duty. The most you know, honorable and, and laudable of people have that tendency to be able to reject what they know they should be doing. We do that. And that's, a, I think, a realistic assessment of the human nature. And I have to admit that's one of the more baffling things about us. Why do we, when we know what is right, will choose to do what is wrong? Why? I don't know. I have to admit, I don't know. Same question that we could ask Adam and Eve. You had everything going your way. Why did you reject it? Why did you reject it? And so that really baffles him. And here in his mature age, he wants to try to come up with a way to address that issue. And so here I am, being faithful to the moral law. I've thought it through. I can always will the actions of my, the maximum actions to be universal law for all people. Remember, that's the categorical comparative. And I'm doing the best I can, but there's something else going on in me. I don't know what that is. It's evil. It's negation. It's destruction. How can I ever overcome that? How can we as a people finally come to the realization that one day it may be possible that good people won't be doing bad things? Not just bad people doing bad things, but good people won't be doing bad things. How can we do that? And he says, well, we've got a model. We have an example. And that's Jesus. And so here he once again goes back to the the deep, reverence of his upbringing, the piety of his parents, how they would model Christ as the example that all of us should follow, that in Christ you don't see that radical evil. You don't see someone turn against what they know to be right. He is consistent in his obedience to the Father's will, even to the point of his death. Well, that should inspire us to be able to do that. If Christ can do it, I can do it. Because I need help. I need a prop. I'm not strong enough on my own. I'm too weak. I'm too conflicted. I've got, you know, memories I can't get rid of. I've got inner turmoil that I cannot solve. I've got the limitations of my own rationality. I'm, I'm a mess. And I need some inspiration. I need someone to walk beside me as a model, as an example. And Kant said, well, look to Christ. He's an example. He is someone who has overcome the tendency of radical evil. And so, interestingly, even though, remember, he would not walk into the cathedral there at Konigsberg. He constantly rejected the institutionalization of religion there in the state church. But at the end, he says, if more of us followed the ways of Jesus, we could come to what he called the perpetual peace, or a kingdom of ends, where all of us would treat people with dignity. He held that out as a possibility, that Christ as a model here, could help us overcome our own inner conflicts so that you and I can treat each other as persons of dignity. And that's what he called the kingdom of ends. All right, I'm going to summarize this. Let's see. Nope.
That's the last slide. And then we can maybe talk about this. Uh, Kant, knowing the limitations of reason, nonetheless came up with a what he called practical, rational argument for God's existence. It's all based on the fact that you know that there's a moral law and you know you should live up to it. That all of us have duties to be consistent in our ethical lives. And that, that that's what makes us great, in fact. Remember the two things that impressed me the most? The starry sky above and the moral law within. Kant felt you are at your best when you reason about the moral law. We experience the ultimate possibilities of our human experiences when we are acting morally. I should respect that about you. Uh, if I, in, in, now, I, I, I may in some ways not be all that interested but, or, or committed to you, but I should always respect that you have your right to determine that moral law for yourself. That is, you have to find it yourself. Now, there's just one moral law for Kant. There's not many. There's not yours and yours and yours and mine. There's one moral law, but you have to be faithful to it. You've got to find your reasons for following the moral law. You have a duty that you must discover through the acts of reason. And I need to respect that about you. I cannot take that away from you. We may limit each other in all kinds of ways. We don't have to be you know, in love with each other. We don't have to be all that interested or committed to one another. But we always have to respect that each of us has to find our own way to be dutiful to the moral law. How can we keep this up? How can we do that? And this is where faith seeks understanding. And that's understanding in the sense of this practical, rational argument. That is, you are more likely to keep up your ethical life. You are more likely to act consistently to your duties if you think that indeed will be a reward to such actions. Therefore, it is practically rational to believe that there is a God who will reward you and a place in which we will experience those rewards and that's the immortality of the soul. And Christ is this great example of one who has fought that fight, so to speak, shows that it's possible and can be a moral example for us. All right. Uh, I'm going to ask you to think about something if you haven't already been on this, but... What would you say is the difference between what Kant is saying about how we understand faith, how it's rational to think that we should believe in God and life after death, and what Thomas Aquinas says? Remember him? Thomas Aquinas, the five arguments? We can know it by looking at the world. What would you think would be the basic difference between the two? Kant's explanation of how we understand our faith, and maybe Thomas Aquinas's explanation of how we understand our faith. Anyone? Yes. Well, not in this way. He actually he did. He talked a lot about ethics, but not in his argument for God's existence. Here, Thomas's argument is based upon what we know about the world. What's Kant's argument based on? Sorry. Inside. That's right. What we know inside. Here, faith is a support for who we are, for what we know is best about us. Religion shows its validity when it helps you to become the best person that you can. What do you think Pascal would say about this? Pascal's wager? How would Kant 
and Pascal carry on a conversation with each other about this. That's what you get for having a teacher lead this. You know, you I've got to ask you a question. I, I, I'd have to turn my money back. No. Well, if and Pascal would agree that it would be better to believe there was a God because you'd hedge your bet better. Well, that's a good point. Yes, they are quite similar. That you're better off believing that there's a God for Pascal because it helps your heart to fulfill its quest. Take the wager. Take the risk. Go ahead and do it. Jump and learn to swim later. Kant, yeah, you need some support. We've got to have some sort of way to sort of reinforce our commitments and so on. Yeah. Anyone else? Yes. I have a question. I missed Thomas Aquinas, but I think he was the logician. So inasmuch as he was a logician, what was his premise that he started? Thomas Aquinas? Yeah. When we look at the world and analyze it, try to understand it, we see some features throughout all of the world. And one of those features is causality. That things cause and they have effects. Effects come from causes. A causes B, C, D, and so on. Well, if you just think that through, what caused A? What caused it? What caused it? What caused it? What caused it? What Thomas said, it's got to start someplace, otherwise it wouldn't have been going in the first place. And that's the first cause, which, according to Thomas, we all know is God. He does that with motion, too. Something moves from one point to the next. Moves and moves, and where did it come from? It's got to come from someplace. Something cannot start itself, in other words. The world did not just create itself. Something had to create it. Something had to move it in order to get created. And that's the first mover, and we all know that to be God. So, what Thomas starts with are basic features about our experience of the world, and then reasons there must be a God. What Kant says and this is somewhat similar, is that we start with a basic experience of who we are as persons, of experiencing the moral law. And hence, we can come up with a rational argument to support that. That is our common human experience of, of the moral law. Yes? But wouldn't, have, I mean, wouldn't Aquinas say, Thomas say, well then, what's the first cause of moral law? Right. God. Right. Now, no. well, yes, 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 Thomas would. Yeah. Yeah, Thomas is the author. Right. I mean, I mean, I mean, God's the author. Yeah, for Thomas, God is the author, not only of creation itself, but of the moral law. But, In fact, Thomas argued, if you really think about ethics, mm -hmm. it will lead you to God. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one of the big differences, and you're right to bring this up, between, let's say, Thomas and, and Kant. Once you think about the moral law, there's nothing else to think beyond it. Here, faith helps you to think about the moral law. Not that it proves God as the author of the moral law. It's just that you need the practical help, assistance of your faith to help you to be consistently moral. Yes? Is Kant, I'm sorry, is Kant not spending time thinking about the, the root of the moral law? Because I think about like C.S. Lewis and Weird Christianity would agree there is this moral law and he uses that to say that is evidence of a God. Why is there a single moral law? Well, it's because there is a God who has set forth the single moral law that is inside of all of us. Right. Does Kant not look backwards at all? Does he only look at how to fulfill that law? Well, another good question. Uh, and, and, you know, C.S. Lewis is trying to understand the basic logic of morality. It presupposes a moral giver, moral lawgiver. Right, I agree. But Kant would say you could never know that. Our minds are too limited to say that there is a God. I mean, there is that podium. 
there is gravity. But how can you say there is God? According to Kant, you cannot. So you cannot postulate that there is this unmoved mover behind the moral law that causes it as the first moral lawgiver. But we can postulate that you need faith in order to be consistently more. It's rational for you to have faith. All, the, all, all of these philosophers have these kind of do this thing logically in, in a setting like Pascal. And I, I've gone through that logic like he did. And they and these all of them trying to do this independently, but it seems and maybe I'm missing something. There's something spiritual from within that you cannot necessarily explain. And these people are trying to explain something that cannot be explained from the spiritual influence from, from the Holy Spirit or from God from within of why you believe. Yeah. Yes, but but it's not backing into it from. Like if I do this, I lose nothing. I'm taking a wager. It's it's a selection. It's a spiritual influence, and I can't. I'm not saying that I understand that, but I'm just saying that is a presence that right. that that I'm not sure. That well, see, that I, I I I see why you you emphasize that because they do come out with these very logical arguments, and it seems like that's what they're emphasizing. But what I've tried to do in this class is to see their arguments in relation to their lives. Why did Kant ever come with this? Why did Anselm ever come up with his ontological argument for God's existence? It was born out of, as you said, this sense of what cannot be fully explained, but we can understand it in part. And it's not irrational. It's not dumb or silly no, to believe in this. Oh. Yeah. And so we, we try to understand our faith not to either control God or manipulate God for sure, or to ever say, I've completely understood who God is, the mystery of God, in the same way that I would understand, let's say, you know, yesterday's newspaper. But I can say, the reality of God compels my mind to know these certain truths. That's definitely the case with Anselm and Thomas. Now, Pascal and Kant are a little different. There was a question over here. Somebody hit. Yes. Uh, just some quick questions. So, uh, Thomas Aquinas is actually saying cause is another way of saying God. First cause. Yeah, yeah first cause. Not causality itself, but, but the first cause. first cause. We have to have a first cause to have the world constructed by causality as it is. Yes. Would Kant have ever walked over from the philosophy department to the religion department no, and no. said, and someone say, look at the Psalm of Asaph that says, this is not just, but then I went into the temple and saw their end. Oh. Or walked over into Romans and seen what Paul was struggling with in 7 to see how the solution was in 8. So there, it seems like they're defining all this within a natural, right. temporal universe as opposed to a supernatural, right. eternal universe. Right, right. Yes? Um, getting back to uh, Pascal and Kant, um, where Kant is saying it's reasonable to have faith, um, wouldn't Pascal say, when he was talking to his Parisian secular friends, and he was saying, look, we all have faith commitments, so he would say, we, we all, even if you're saying there is no God, that is a stance of, 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 of faith something. commitment. You, you have belief in yeah, right. that. And you're, you're, right. 
you're pushing that. Yeah. And so he'd say everyone is coming from a point of having faith commitments, whether you, you know, we can't prove either way, we're all coming from faith. And then Khan is just saying it's reasonable to have faith. Right. Now, I also think Pascal would say it'd be reasonable to wager that there is a God in the same way that it's reasonable to wager on love with anyone. You don't know exactly how it's going to end up, but you have to make an investment to find that out. And that's the reasons of the heart that he said. Not the reasons of the mind, but the reasons of the heart. Yes. Oh. Yes, sorry, Doctor. It seems to me that uh, Pascal is saying it's very practical and logical. And Kant is saying it's intuitive. We are intuitive spirituality. There is an intuition to Kant, you're right. Our time is almost up. Let me say one concluding thing about Kant. Uh, Kant's basic emphasis here is not that religion tells us anything true or that we actually know anything about God. Here the whole value of religion is it helps us become better people. And that's kind of the essence of what one could call contemporary or, or, or 19th century liberalism. And this Kantian approach is very much part of that. I give it to you because it's a well-known argument to illustrate. I'm not saying be a Kantian or be a Thomistic. I'm not. I'm not saying any of this. But you need to find your own way to be faithful in your faith commitment to God. How can you think about the world in light of what we believe in God? What do you think about human nature in light of what we believe about God? All right, I appreciate you coming. I'll close with a prayer. Our gracious Lord, in whom all mysteries are and to whom we give our hearts, I pray, O Lord, that you'll convict us to be faithful servants of thee in our deepest, deepest feelings and our sharpest, sharpest thinking. I pray your blessings on each of us in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.